tonight I'm going to be looking at John chapter 1, particularly verses 14 through 18, but I want to begin reading in verse 1 to set the, in, uh, the context and read the entire prologue to the gospel of John. John chapter 1. As I said in the prayer, we're so glad to have you guest with us, with the members here at Covenant tonight. Again, God's word, listen, as God talks to us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. A man came, one sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. This was the true light that, coming into the world enlightens every person. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God." And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and called out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who is coming after me has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who's in the arms of the Father, He has explained Him. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, and we ask You now to to bless the reading, the hearing, and now the preaching so that we might not leave like we came, but we'd leave more like this one, the Word, who, was, who came and took on flesh and who suffered and bled and died, was raised according to the Scriptures and is even now enthroned on high, seated with you, Father, ruling over his church, conquering his foes, anticipating that day when he will descend from the heavens. The shout of, of heaven will come with him and we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye and those who precede us will be raised and we will all take on that new glorified body that you've prepared for us and we will enjoy the new heavens and new earth forever and ever. We look forward to that. Give us faith that we might believe the Lord Jesus Christ and have everlasting life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The title of the sermon you see there is God in flesh. That's exactly what that says. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The dwelling thing, that's the giveaway that it's linked to the Old Testament. Because it's, it's more literally, he tabernacled with us. A couple of interesting words. One at the beginning of that passage, the dwelling among us or tabernacling with us. And then the very last, he has explained him or he has exegeted him. We get our word exegesis from that. He explained him. He, he described him perfectly. The book of Hebrews says that he's the exact image of God the Father. To prove the point that there is no difference. They're one and the same. One God, three persons, three persons, and one God. But think about that dwelling among us. That goes back to the imagery of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And that's where God would come and dwell with his people. It was transitory. They'd move the tabernacle. God would come. God would go. They'd wait for the Shekinah glory, the glory of God coming and inhabiting, surrounding the place. And now that tabernacle, we're told, has taken on flesh. And by the way, that hasn't changed. With his ascension, he's enthroned on high in that very same flesh glorified. He's forever the God-man. It's the reason John could say in the book of Revelation that he saw the Lord as a lamb slain. You know, when you get these false images, violations of the second commandment placarded on, on walls, you don't usually see a mutilated, beaten body on a cross. Or off a cross, do you? It's usually a cleaned up version because you, you wouldn't want to scandalize people's senses to see what really happened to the Savior. Well, that's only a little bit of the problem with making false images of Christ. But the point is, is that he's forever dwelling among us. Remember what he said? To the disciples in John 14, I'm going away, but I won't leave you as orphans. I'll send you another, the Savior, the, the Spirit, just like me. The same stuff. Remember the last things he said in the book of Matthew as he sent the disciples out to do the work, the church doing the work. All authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples, baptizing, teaching them all. And lo, I'm with you always. That tabernacling ceased to be transitory with the coming of Christ. That's part of the, that's part of the wonder, as we heard so well this morning. That's part of the wonder of our Savior. Is he, could, he could be fully divine and fully man 
go through the crucifixion, go through the resurrection, receive this glorified body, be seated in, in, in heaven on the throne with the Father, empowered to do all of his holy will, He's the same. He dwells with us. We can't see God, but God can see us. Some of you children have learned that. So the tabernacling thing. Now listen, Revelation 5, 4 through 6, we're reminded of the abiding presence of God's glory, of his tabernacling. And keep in mind there, that's what's going on there in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. What I just said in the Old Testament, when God came and inhabited the tabernacle, later the temple, that was his, his glory descending upon the place. The glory of the Lord came down. You say, so that's what happened when Jesus came and took on flesh? When he tabernacled on this earth, the glory of God came down? Yeah, it's exactly what happened. The glory of God came down and dwelt with them for those 30 some odd years. Unbroken, not intermittent as it had been in the old covenant. And that then set the, pat set the pattern for all the rest of history. Christ would be with his people. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen to Revelation. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That passage is about the abiding presence of the Lord. Don't ever fret. He can always do it. He can always take care of it. And again, Hebrews 7, we learn of his abiding and glorious presence. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. In his priestly work, he continues forever. There's no, no gaps in his, in his glorious presence with us. He's always abiding with us. Do you, do you sit and ponder that? Some of you are sitting here tonight with your spouse. Others sitting here with a friend, with siblings. And tomorrow, unless you just determine that you're just going to stay at home and everybody's going to stay right here, we're going to line up just like we were at church last night and we're not budging. That's not likely to happen. And so there'll be some break in your presence. Dad will go out to work. Mom may go out to work. You may go to school this way or that way. Or you're on break already and you're going to go shopping. Well, you can get more done if you go that way and I go this way. And all of a sudden you're not present. There's never that with us. 
You say, but wait, we're here. There's, there's millions upon millions of God's people spread around the, the world. Yep, that's the, that's the wonder of it, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus Christ sits on high and yet the Spirit of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit is with us all, everywhere, all the time, in every place. He's full of wonder. This guarantees it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory. Here, Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God. Remember, this is in the context of the new heavens and new earth. Chapter 21, 22 described that so wonderfully. The second coming of Christ, the new heavens and new earth. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling of God is among men and he will dwell, he will tabernacle among them. They shall be his people and God himself will be among them. There it is again. So from, from the time of his first incarnation forever and ever, he is with us, tabernacling with us, dwelling with us. His glory, don't, don't miss that, his glory is upon us. Now this is an aside. What happened? What happened? Well, it's not really an aside, but it is sort of kind of an aside. But what happened when the glory of God descended upon the mount and then Moses, who was in his presence, came down? Well, the short answer is everybody could tell there was a difference about Moses. It made a difference. The glory of God had changed him. We could go to the Joshua passage that I went to last week in the morning. Was it last week or two weeks? Whenever. Two weeks ago. Joshua, you're on holy ground. Joshua fell down. And Joshua was never the same again. He'd been in the presence of the Lord the glory of the Lord had changed Joshua and his leadership. That's an aside, but that's, that's an application point. The question is, has the glory of God changed your life? Because if you say you trust in Jesus, that you believe in Jesus, then you've had, you've had, this, you've had this cosmic encounter with the glory of Christ. And no one in the Bible ever had that encounter without being different. All right. There's a few points. You see it in the outline there. First one is this. Christ Jesus is the treasure of heaven for the church. And again, remember the tabernacle theme in the Old Testament. The people hope of the transcendent God being present with them. That was their hope. They saw the tabernacle, that was, a, that was a focal point of hope. Their desire was, their hope was, God would be with them. When God wasn't with them, bad things happened. When God didn't go before them, the wise among them didn't go. How many times God told somebody, go and do this, and the answer was, if you don't go with us, we're not going. 
If you're not tabernacling with us, if you're not present with us, we're not going. If he wasn't, and they did go, it was not pretty. But if he was, and they did, it was wonderful. In the biblical sense of wonderful. Because God was present. The one that's full of wonder. And so the Shekinah glory. Christ manifested that glory when he performed miracles. Water into wine at Canaan. Blind to the sight, lame to the walking. The resurrection of Lazarus. That was the glory of God being manifest in, the, in his presence doing these wonderful things. Here's one we don't often think of. I've brought it up before in sermons. Few people do, and that doesn't make me special. It's just, it's easy to overlook because we typically, we typically in theology, we read about the, the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. And when we're talking about the glory of Christ, we, I think, having read a lot on this, we tend to overlook the fact that the very presence of Christ, as he lived out his humiliation, the incarnation, being captured, as it were, in the womb of a woman, living in the midst of sin, rubbing shoulders with sinners, going to the cross. We forget that the glory of God was evident in all of that. And so then, because we typically put glory with exaltation, Christ being exalted, he's resurrected, he's ascending to heaven, his glory. And that comes from some bad theology through the years. Of, well, when Christ came, he emptied himself of, of, of his glory. No. Had he emptied himself of his glory, he would have ceased to be divine. As pastor said this morning, he chose time from time to not do this, not know this. But even then the glory of God was upon him. Even then the glory of God was evident. Because only God could do that. And so even in his humiliation, he was glorified. He was exalted. He was he was. Well, let me just read it to you in John chapter 12. Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Of course, he's speaking there of the crucifixion that's, that's coming. The grain dying, being put in the ground. The burial and of course, you bury it, it sprouts. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then we read this. A voice came from heaven. I have 
glorified it, and I will glorify it again. You mean in the midst of his humiliation, in the midst of his living, his incarnate life on this earth, the Father says, you've been glorified. Yeah, that's just what was said. Every time he did a miracle, the glory of God was there. Every time he spoke authoritatively, perfect truth, no mixture of untruth, the glory of God, because only God can speak perfect truth. Or as Francis Schaeffer said, true truth. Glory is that which makes God substantial or weighty above measure. The miracles Christ performed set him apart from all the magicians. They revealed his deity, his ability to interfere, if you will, with the natural course of sin-torn world, separated him from everything else, and gave him a certain substance, a certain weightiness. Now, the reason I bring this weightiness theme up is because we often talk about God's glory and the glory of God being something that's almost without definition. But it has something to do with him being so, so substantial, so weighty, so, so important. And that's exactly what's going on here. All these things contribute to the substantiality of the Lord. The cross is for John the highest expression of Christ's glory. The glory of the only begotten. And this relates Christ, of course, to the Father. As we read in Hebrews 1, I alluded to it earlier. He is the glory of the Father. Remarkable thought, isn't it? In his incarnation, in his treading that, those hillsides and those streets, the glory of God trailing along the pathway of earth. No wonder sinners couldn't quite take it. When you're in the presence of, of holiness, when you're in the presence of God, it's tough to take if you're, if you're knee-deep in sin. That's on a sad note. The reason often you start seeing someone not present on Sunday. I've told this story before. A number of new people here, but I'll never forget one night, I walk in on Wednesday night, my pastor, Baptist church, way back yonder, almost before I can even remember, I've gotten so old. And he's standing in the, in, the, in the shadow, and I walk through the door from the dining hall on Wednesday night, and he said, what have you been up to? That's spooky when you're living in sin. We had a discussion later, and he said, I've observed through the years when people start moving around the building and they work their way to the back, it's not long till they're out the back door. He said, and you know what 
what's caused that. There's nothing, nothing wrong with the church. It's your sin. Because your sin, you don't want to be around the very mention of the name of Christ because of the glory of Christ, the holiness of Christ. He was right. So think about that before we start moving around chairs. No, seriously. Those of you sitting on the back, I know you've been there all, for a long time. You're not going anywhere. But it is an observation, isn't it? We see this happen. The elders observe this. We see someone, they're, they're less faithful and a little less faithful than less faithful. And then the next thing you know, they're not here at all. You begin to inquire, and it's sin. Sin always separates. Isn't that what the Bible says? That we're separated from God by sin? Sin has that effect on us. We don't want to be around God. We don't want to be around God's people. The very place we need to be when we're in sin, we don't want to be. Because God is weighty. He's heavy. And all of a sudden, we've got this burden upon us. And it's not just our sin that we're carrying around. It's the, it's the, it's the very presence of God that we're trying to carry around. That'll break your back. That'll break your soul. The way to deal with that is repent of the sin. And all of a sudden, that, that, that heaviness will become your most favorite and treasured aspect of who God is. Instead of being afraid of God, you'll love it. You'll love the Shekinah cloud instead of hating it. It'll be your refuge. Second, Christ is to be exalted above all else we see in this passage. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, we saw his glory, glories of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is John's testimony. This was he of whom I said, he who is coming after me is proved to be my superior because he existed before me. He's to be exalted above all things. That's a simple point. That's a brief point. No reason to even belabor that. He's superior. He, exalt, he existed forever. Running our minds back up the verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. You could say, if that were all that was said in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Well, that could be the beginning of the world because, well, he was with God. But it doesn't stop there, does it? He was with God and he was God. There, no way possible to keep from understanding Christ to be pre-time and space. Pre-existing, in other words. Because he is the eternal one. And so he's superior. Because he existed before me. So, 
his incarnation is an exaltation because it revealed who he was, the glory of God. The very same glory that had shadowed the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. Third thing, Christ, the treasure of heaven, is our provision. Verses 16 through 18. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen him at any time. God, the only son who's in the arms or the bosom of the father, he has explained him. So, point three, Christ, the treasure of heaven, is our provision. Where do I get that? Well, he's grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Charles Hodge, the prince of Princeton, the lion of Princeton. That's old Princeton when they believed the Bible. In his commentary on this, he says, what does that mean, grace upon grace? It just means that Jesus is grace over grace over grace over grace. In other words, Jesus multiplies grace because he's the personification of grace. That's the reason we say often, you can't outgrace Jesus. You can't outgrace God. What we're saying there is you can't outsend the grace of God. Doesn't matter what you've done. Think, what have you done? Oh, well, you know, pastor, some people have done some really bad things. Yeah, we've got people in this room who've done some really bad things. But God's grace wasn't stymied by that. God's grace forgives. God's grace changes. God's grace sustains. Isn't that what Jesus was getting at when he said he came to save sinners? The righteous don't need anything. Now, he wasn't saying that there were any, there were any people who didn't need salvation. He was just saying, if, if, you, if you think you're so righteous, well, my message is not for you. Because you're not going to accept it. But sinners recognize. Isn't that the first vow? You recognize yourself a sinner in need of salvation. And only then, when you realize you're a sinner, recognize you're a sinner, can you be saved. Only then does the second vow make sense. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Receive him and rest upon him. Now, don't get hung up here on this little passage because a lot of people have done something that's just, A, uh, the syntax won't allow for it, but B, uh, the, the, the whole truth of the Bible won't allow for it. People have read it, grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth realized through Jesus Christ. They set up this false, this false dichotomy between grace and law, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's not what John's saying here at all. 
He's wanting us to understand that grace multiplied came in Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. What we had before Jesus Christ was all set forth by men. Yeah, from God. God gave it. He came down from God. Men spoke it. But then the incarnation came. In the fullness of time, didn't we get better everything with Jesus? That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. A better priest, a better prophet, a better king, a better covenant. Why? Because it was different? Nope. We just got Jesus. Jesus explained everything. If Jesus is necessary to explain God the Father, he was certainly necessary to explain the Old Covenant. To explain the law. Oh, you know, people had this false idea even in the days of Jesus. And Jesus had to say, let me tell you something. Yes, I've come, but not a jot or a tittle will fall from the law. I've come to fill it full. Not to eradicate it. And we still have people insisting, oh no, the law is gone. Jesus came. Just read Jesus' words. Read the words of Paul, the apostle. The law of God is spiritual and good and holy. Why would you think you're going to replace something that's spiritual and good and holy? And Jesus just came to fill it out, to help us understand it all better. And he's our provision. When I say he's our provision, I'm talking about his, his grace and his law. That's what we need. The law is the rule of life whereby we know how to live in a, in a manner that's pleasing to God and helpful to other people. And there's grace, of course. When Paul had his problems and he prayed the Lord take them away and finally... The Lord said, no, I'm not going to take them away, but my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul lived that way. So the question is, is, is God's grace sufficient for you? Or are you always looking for something else, something more? Oh, yes, I know I needed God's grace to get me out of hell, but I, well, you need, you need God's grace to get you out of hell, but also to get you through every day, every moment. There's not a moment that you don't need the grace of God. Because the grace of God, again, is the personification of Jesus Christ. You always need Christ. And lo, he's with you always, even to the end of the age. He dwells with you. He tabernacles with us. He's ever there. Ever there. Notice, too, by the way, if you're, if you're tempted to draw this distinction, this, this black line between grace and law, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Was the law not truth? Say yes. Of course the law was truth. 
And by the way, who is truth? Again, personified. I am the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come to this time of the year, to Christmas, these are the kind of things we should think about. It's, it's wonderful to think about the infant in the, in, the, in the cradle because he did come and take on flesh. He did live an infant life. The historical nature of it, we don't deny. In fact, we, we believe wholeheartedly. But we want to fill up that, that cradle with the glory of God. We want to flesh out all through his life. This is the glory of God, the Father, walking around with us. It was seen on the mountain. That mount of transfiguration. All of a sudden, the Lord Jesus Christ took on this, this glorious glow. He was transmorphed into this this otherly-like image. And that was just his glory coming out. And it made Peter stupid. You remember? Oh, man, this is great. Let's build, a, let's build a tabernacle here. He was the tabernacle. You had him, Peter. He didn't need a building, but we tend to think in those terms... Just like John, yeah, yeah, and just like when Nicodemus comes in John chapter 3, Jesus said, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus starts thinking what he knows physical about being born. Peter was just thinking physically what he knew about tabernacles. But it's all about Jesus. He's the tabernacle. He was the embodiment of truth. And then finally, Christ, the treasure of heaven, is God himself. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Again, I run you back to Hebrews 1. He is the exact image, the glory of God, the Father. Distinct from the Father, yet one with the Father. There's the wonder of it all. We talk about this all the time around here. One God, three persons, three persons, one God. Distinct and yet indistinct. Christ was no phantasm, no substance less Appearance, he was God in the flesh. Listen to what B.B. Warfield said. Back in 1917, over a four-day period, he delivered several addresses to students and locals in Columbia, South Carolina. He delivered the Thomas Smythe lectures for the seminary. That was when Columbia Theological Seminary was was uh, still in Columbia, South Carolina before it moved to Georgia. And we know what happens to people when they move to Georgia. Institutions, similarly, they kind of get a little, little strange. And so they, they went off the rails once they moved out of South Carolina. But at this point, they had Warfield there. A little later on, they had J. Gressa Machen 
come and give these lectures. Machen gave his virgin birth lectures. Warfield gave the counterfeit miracle lectures. Warfield was doing battle with the holiness Pentecostal movement. The perfectionist. He wrote in his collected writings two big volumes on perfectionism. It was a real problem. In fact, I heard driving here tonight up to the church a question for someone on a call show, a, a Christian call-in show. said, you know, the Bible says that we're to be perfect as he is perfect. So don't you think Christians can be perfect in this life? Why do you not believe that? The Bible says we can. Well, there's somebody that hasn't looked in the mirror lately. Well, we know what that means. It means completed. We're complete in Christ. We have everything we need in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we're without sin, because if anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. The Bible says so. And I wanted the host of the calling show to just say that to the poor man. But, of course, he got all nuanced about it and didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Warfield wrote two volumes, unnuanced, against perfectionism. The idea, some of you all may have, like I have, families, family members that are in the holiness Pentecostal movement. And they still, I have an aunt who died, and I'm sure, I feel certain she's with the Lord, but she hadn't sinned for years, one of the last times I saw her. I got in the car with my dad, I was still little, got in the car, and my dad said, Dad, what's it, Aunt? What, what? He said, oh, she's crazy. And then he said, no, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. She's misled. Son, that's the problem when you, when you live on your emotions instead of on the word of God. And he was right. Listen to what Warfield said, though. Not about perfectionism. What about our topic tonight? And that's the enfleshment of Christ and this glory, this, this, this inhabitation of God's glory with us, this tabernacling among us. He said this in the very first paragraph of the very first lecture. He said, when our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. The trailing clouds of glory. You got the picture? Everywhere Christ walked, it's like this, this, this trail of glory, Shekinah cloud was just kind of wafting along. You couldn't tell if it was following him or pushing him. It was so pronounced. Jesus tabernacled with man. Those of us who are in union with Christ through faith alone live in the presence of this glory, not temporarily as the saints of old did, but permanently. Grace for all things, truth in all cases, Jesus, God in flesh, the glory of heaven on earth. That's who we worship. That's why we talk about Christmas. And that's what we believe. So my friend, 
Bob Drake, who pastored in Asheville, North Carolina, for many years, would say, he'd lean up, he'd say, do you believe that? If you do, let's pray. Let's do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, for your grace in sending the Son to tabernacle with us. We ask you to give us faith to believe it and trust him. In Jesus' name, amen.